Coming up on Tech Nation, we have gorillas, chimpanzees, and monkeys, birds and bats, and even rats. David Quammen is the author of Spillover, Animal Infections, and the Next Human Pandemic, his 2012 book that sounds oh so familiar today. Then a San Diego company working hard on a simple blood test for early stage cancer. With two-thirds of lung cancer patients initially diagnosed at stage four, Chris Hibbert, the CEO of Nucleics, tells us how they did it, their focus on bladder cancer and 12 other cancers, and how its science fueled a law and order episode. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with Daniel Pink about his book, To Sell is Human, the surprising truth about moving others. You know, in Silicon Valley, we often say everyone's an entrepreneur. But for Daniel Pink, just about everybody everywhere is a salesman. It's true. I do say that. And if it's, it's true in the data. Right now in the U.S., you have one in nine people in the workforce are in sales. Their job is to get people to buy stuff. It's people in Silicon Valley who are selling computer systems, uh, people in Silicon Valley who are selling real estate or automobiles. And yet, if you look at what those other eight and nine do, they're in sales too. For this book, To Sell as Human, I went out and did some survey research, asked 7,000 adult full-time workers a bunch of questions, including this one. How, what percentage of your time do you spend persuading, influencing, convincing other people to give up something they have in exchange for what you have? And that what they have could be denominated in dollars, but it could also be time, attention, effort. And on average, people told us they're spending 40% of their time on the job doing this kind of thing that's kind of sort of like sales, what I call non-sales selling. So you know, if you if one ninth are doing something and the other eight ninths are doing something, you add them up. That's nine ninths, or like it or not, we're all in sales now. Just about everybody. <laughs> yeah, like it or not. I mean, that's basically I think the nature of what we do for a whole host of of economic reasons. Well, in the social media digital space, certainly there's the aspect of selling. I mean, Facebook, it's an image. Twitter, it's a short message. Match dot com, a person you want to have a relationship with. Even Craigslist, you want to just even give something away. You could better make it appealing, or they're not going to come and take it. That's uh, that's exactly right. I mean, those kinds of technologies are part of why, at some at some level, we are all all in sales now. And those are, and most of those aren't even in our work lives. Match.com profile is essentially a pitch. It is a it is a pitch to prospective romantic partners. Twitter is essentially an invitation to pay attention and, and to engage. Facebook too, and Craigslist. I mean, literally, in some cases, is selling even if the sale is has no dollars, no money's changing hands. Now, lots of people are saying right now, look, I'm just not a salesperson. For yeah. one thing, I'm kind of shy or I'm private or the last thing anyone would expect me to do well is sell. Mm. But you're seeing it kind of differently, right? I'm seeing it very differently, as, as a matter of fact. And that's actually the heart of what I've, I've found out. So there are a couple of interesting dimensions of this. Uh, one of the questions that I asked these 7,000 adult full-time workers is, when you think of sales or selling, what's the first word that comes to mind? What's the first word that comes to mind? And when you track through these responses, after having eliminated the nouns, I focused on the adjectives because they give you some emotional content. And out of the top 25 adjectives that people gave in response to that question, 20 were negative, 5 were positive, 20 were negative, and they were words like pushy, sleazy, 
slimy, high smarmy, pressure, cheesy, <laughs> annoying, not very positive words. And so to say we're all in sales now, people say, oh, you know, they say they, they, literally, they literally gave the answer ick as the first word that came to mind. Yuck as the first word that came to mind. And so we do have this feeling about that, that sales is ick, yuck, and uck, slimy, sleazy, and smarmy. I think that's wrong, though. Now, we always think of these sort of pushy, extroverted people. Yeah. But you say, hey, hey, the, the best are actually in the middle. And ambivert? Abs- I've never heard this Oh, before. yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, one reason why I think the, the, the idea that, we're, that, that sales is not as sleazy and slimy as, as it was before is because that was a world of information asymmetry. When the seller always has more information than the buyer, the seller can rip you off. And so that's why we have the whole principle of buyer beware. If I know a lot more than you and you have no way to talk back and you have no and few choices, I can go down the low road. I can hoodwink you. Um, and that's why we think of sales as inherently kind of suspect. But now that information asymmetry that defined the relationship has changed. It's information parity. And so that's moving us to the high road. Information parity? Oh, yeah. Just pick up your smartphone during the sales pitch. You've been listening to a 2013 Tech Nation interview with Daniel Pink about his book, To Sell is Human. A prolific author, Daniel's latest book is When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, remember that we journalists always ask, what did you know, when did you know it, and what did you do when you found out? With respect to the COVID-19 pandemic, Tech Nation listeners can answer the first two questions easily. The year was 2012, and David Quammen's interview with spillover, animal infections, and the next human pandemic. Then in biotech, a blood test to diagnose lung cancer, not at stage four when most lung cancers are diagnosed, but much earlier. We hear from Chris Hibbard, the CEO of Nucleics, about this same approach to bladder cancer and 12 other cancers that they've targeted. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. In 2012, SARS was already known to be a fearsome thing, grounding international flights, as well as anyone who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But even then we knew SARS didn't start with humans. David Quammen is the author of Spillover. SARS did not start with humans. SARS emerged from an animal somewhere in southern China. It was a mystery for a while which animal it emerged from. And it got into people by way of restaurants, probably, that were serving wild animals in what they call the wild flavor vogue in southern China. And then it got into a man, a doctor, who decided to visit his nephew, go to his wedding in Hong Kong. So he went to Hong Kong and checked into a hotel. And from that hotel in Hong Kong, SARS spread to the world. 
Wow. How long did that take? Hours. Hours. Maybe a couple of days. The man, this doctor, checked into room 911 on the ninth floor of the Metropole Hotel, and he may have sneezed, he may have coughed in the elevator. According to some stories, he vomited on the ninth floor. And people up and down the ninth floor then left that hotel the following day, got on planes for Toronto, Singapore, Beijing, and Hanoi, and carried the SARS virus with them. 78-year-old grandmother flew back to Toronto. She was getting sick on the way. She eventually landed in Toronto. She died. By the time she died, her son was infected. He went into the hospital. He died. People in the hospital got sick. Some of them died. And that went on in these several cities. It all came from a virus. And that virus came from a wild animal. In retrospect, we know that the animal was a bat. And it was one of these zoonotic diseases, diseases that emerge from non-human animals and get into humans. And that's the subject of the book. Now, zoonotic, I would say zoonotic diseases. How do you spell that? Zoonotic. Uh, Zoonotic. (laughs) Z-O-O-N-O-T-I-C. Each of these microbes would be called a zoonosis. And sometimes they pass from non-human animals into humans, and they don't cause disease. They become innocent passengers, new viruses that we're carrying around without any effect. There's one called simian foamy virus that falls into that category. Passes from monkeys in Southeast Asia into the humans who sometimes feed monkeys in sacred monkeys at monkey temples. And this virus jumps across. Simian foamy virus. One of the scientists I followed, Lisa Jones Engel, studies that. But simian foamy doesn't cause disease. Yet, it's sort of an indicator of opportunities for other viruses to pass, and that's why she studies it, because one of those other viruses could be the next SARS. You never know. You never you know. Never know. Well, I, I remember uh, going up a wonderful path up the up to a, a temple in India, and you know, before we were going there, everyone said, "Be careful, because they have." monkeys, and they'll steal your wallet, they'll steal your earrings, they'll steal your... And so we were all prepared, and I was totally unprepared for how they would be grasping at your hand, or mm-hmm. you know, it would be very simple to, to break the skin. Yeah, and that, that genus of monkeys is macaca. They're called macaques, long-tailed macaques, rhesus macaques. Uh, a lot of the monkeys that are used in medical research are macaques. They're very bold, they're very smart, they're very opportunistic, And they're quite happy to be in close proximity with humans, especially if the humans have food. Now, we recently had on Bill Wasik and Monica Murphy with with Rabbit. And, of Mm -hmm. course, Monica is a a veterinarian. She explained how bats can very quickly and simply, you just think they've fluttered by you, but, in fact, they've... They've, they've broken the skin. Mm-hmm. They've, they've, they've pierced the skin, and you can yeah. transmit what's going on there. And I just uh, had lunch with Bill. That's a very interesting book. There you go. Rabbit, yeah. Very interesting book. And uh, we can understand about the monkeys. This doesn't explain how a gorilla could give you a disease, though. No. Because I would run. <laughs> From a gorilla? Yes. Well, that's, that's rational, whether the gorilla has a disease or not. But gorillas are involved in Ebola. Actually, what started me on this whole book project was I was at a campfire in a forest in Central Africa 
uh, in the midst of a sort of a cross-Congo walk, something I was covering from Nas- for National Geographic. And at this campfire, I was talking with these two local guys, two Bantu guys who were working on this trek, and they started telling me about the time Ebola virus struck their village. It was famous in the Annals of Disease, uh, the Ebola literature. I'd already read about this event, but they told me what it had been like to be there, seeing their friends and loved ones die from this horrible disease outbreak. They didn't know what it was at the time. They just knew people were dying. And uh, one of them lost six family members. He had a niece who died in his arms. He was covered with her blood, but he didn't get sick. And then the other fellow told me, you know... There was a peculiar thing, too, when Ebola struck our village. Nearby in the forest, he and I saw a pile of 13 dead gorillas, a pile of 13 dead gorillas in the forest. And I knew from my reading of the literature that Ebola kills gorillas and chimpanzees as well as humans. And as a matter of fact, the outbreak in their village began because some young hunters found a dead chimp in the forest. They scavenged it. They brought it back to the village. The people who butchered and ate the chimp got sick with Ebola. So the chimp had presumably died of Ebola. And those gorillas, the pile of 13 dead gorillas, had certainly died of Ebola too. And that was the moment. That was 12 years ago. But I never got that image, that phrase out of my mind. 13 dead gorillas near the Ebola-struck village. It represented the connectedness of us and other species by way of the diseases that we share. Now, this was about connectedness, but that doesn't say what the source is. Do we know an Ebola? We don't know with Ebola. The, the, the source, the scientists call that the reservoir host. A reservoir host of one of these viruses is the animal, the kind of animal in which the virus lives permanently, inconspicuously. Benign, As- benign to that benign, species. Yeah. Benign, asymptomatically. That's its permanent hideout. It has to live somewhere. Viruses need living cells in order to replicate. It has to live somewhere. It can't just live in the mud. It can't just live on a rock. It needs to live in a cell inside a creature. Reservoir hosts are the creatures that carry a virus endemically, asymptomatically. And one of the first uh, tasks in dealing with any new one of these emerging diseases is to figure out what's the reservoir host. In other words, where does it come from when it spills over into humans? That They call that phenomenon spillover. That's where my title comes from. When it spills over into humans, uh, it spills over from this reservoir host. They have to identify that reservoir host in order to deal with it. They've been trying since 1976 the first outbreak of Ebola, to identify the reservoir host. They still don't know what animal it is. They suspect bats, but they don't have the rock-solid proof that the reservoir is bats. Now, that is fascinating to me. If if the it, We know that it can get to the gorilla. We know it can get to the chimpanzee. We know it could get to the human. Obviously, they're not the reservoir host because they die. Right. So you have to look at a much larger network to see exactly how it comes. Oh, and some of these people, the people that do the field work in this in this area, are are really intelligent and um, gutsy, and they've got a because they don't know. They don't know. They so could they be go, walking right into the mouth of hell here. They go into the forest. Uh, we, when I was on this trek, we knew that we were walking through Ebola territory. We walked for two weeks through the jungle, and uh, we didn't see any gorillas, and we didn't see any sign of gorillas. Presumably because by the time we got there, the gorillas were all dead of Ebola. 
we knew that it was living there somewhere in the forest in a reservoir host. We didn't know if it was a bat or a porcupine or a bird or an insect. Maybe one of the mosquitoes that was biting us was carrying it for all we knew. We knew it was there somewhere. We didn't know what animal it was in. The scientists who study this go into those places and they start collecting animals. They trap rodents. They trap bats. They trap birds. They trap lizards. Uh, they get they kill monkeys and they dissect these things out there in their in their aprons and their masks and their two layers of latex gloves, cutting apart these animals, taking samples, putting them in little tubes to take them back and screen for Ebola. But they don't know where the Ebola is. They don't know which animal has got it. If they cut themselves, they don't know whether they've just picked up a dose of it. Um, it's a branch of science that's not for the faint of heart. In fact, it's a branch of science that uh, takes so much creativity just to figure out what do we do? How do we? It's not like there's like, oh, we'll just sit home and work on our computer and go to the lab occasionally. Mm -hmm. They got to go out there and say we're living and we're looking at nature that we've never seen before. Right. We've right. got to figure out right. what it is because you could actually dissect a, a an animal and not be looking in the right place in the animal right. for right. where the reservoir is within right. that particular right. animal. And so that, that's one of the kinds of mysteries that I trace in this book. I mean, this is a book of explaining science, but it's also, I hope it reads like a mystery story. I hope it's a page turner. It's not just about explaining a very dire situation. It's also about giving people a good read, giving them a certain amount of, um, not just warning about the subject, but a certain amount of empowering understanding of the dynamics that underlie this phen phenomenon and why it seems to be occurring more now. I mean, there's a drumbeat, Mara, of these, of these diseases that have emerged in the last 50 years. You know, um, the one called Machupo in South America, also known as Bolivian hemorrhagic fever, 1961. Marburg virus, which is related to Ebola, 1967. Ebola, 1976, and it goes on. Mad cow, 1989. Uh, Lassa fever, 1969. Um, HIV-1, the AIDS pandemic, uh, first noticed in 81, identified in 83, and then some things, bird flu, 19. There's a drumbeat of these things. They keep coming at us, and zoonotic disease has been around for a long time. Bubonic plague was a zoonotic disease. All of the influenzas are zoonotic diseases. But what's going on now? Is it getting worse? Are there more of these things emerging? And if there are, Why? Is this just our misfortune? Is it bad luck? Or does it have something to do with things that we're doing? Are these independent events or are they part of a pattern? That's, that's what I'm trying to get out in the book. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is David Quammen, an honored recipient of a John Burroughs Medal and three National Magazine Awards and the 2012 winner of the Stephen Jay Gould Prize. You likely know him from his many books, including The Reluctant Mr. Darwin. He's here today with Spillover, Animal Infections, and the Next Human Pandemic. Is it possible that because of all the human travel, because we're noticing these kinds of things uh, moving around on the planet, that it, we perceive that there is more of this rather than that there is more of it. Well, it is possible. I mean, we're looking harder. We've got more scientists out there with better tools. Uh, there's a fellow uh, based at Stanford here named Nathan Wolf who has uh, found in an organization called Global Viral. Uh, he's out there with his people trying to detect these new viruses 
at a very early point, as soon as they spill over from wild animals into hunters in Central Africa or people interacting with um, macaques in Southeast Asia or wherever. So there are people like Nathan who are out there looking more carefully uh, and with better tools than ever before. That would lead us to be finding these things more often. But it also is likely that they are spilling over more often. And when they do spill over, the consequences or the potential consequences are higher than ever before. You mentioned we're traveling. There are two real factors that I, that I think about, disruption and connectivity. And those are sort of the yin and yang of our increased jeopardy to this phenomenon. Disruption because there are more of us humans pushing harder and harder into the the diverse ecosystems, the wild places, the, the tropical forests and other places around the world where all the biological diversity lives or where the highest biological diversity lives. And wherever there's biological diversity, wherever there's lots of different kinds of plants and animals and fungi, there also will, and bacteria, there will also be lots of viruses living in all those other life forms. So the more we push in there, the more we contact those species, the more we disrupt ecosystems, cut down trees, kill and eat animals, the more we come in contact with their pathogens, their bugs, the more we expose ourselves to those viruses, the more we offer ourselves as an alternative host. So we're more likely to be picking up more of these things. Then we move around a lot. We travel. We travel from Hong Kong to Toronto in a matter of hours. We travel all over the planet, and we live in dense aggregations in cities. Those are the perfect circumstances for these things, if they have the capacity to pass from one human to another, to pass from one human to another and create outbreaks, epidemics, pandemics. So disruption and continuity, excuse me, and so disruption and connectivity are the circumstances that... Uh, increase the likelihood that something will spill over and increase the likelihood that it'll go global if it does spill over. Now, in modern day, if we look at the SARS virus and what happened when it went global and the sort of the epidemiological global machine <laughs> jumped into force here, mm -hmm. and it was actually identified as a, as a coronavirus by mm -hmm. uh, the folks in Joe DeRisi's lab here at UCSF. They have the virus chip. They have fragments of all the known animal and human viruses, and they keep they just yeah. keep adding them all on. So what will it'll attach to? Well, they didn't have an exact match, but they had one that was it, it semi, mm -hmm. it's like, oh my, it's this kind of virus. We haven't seen it before. We have it on the chip now, so we know right away if it's, if it's mm -hmm. SARS. This was modern technology that was not available in, for instance, 1918, when we had a huge Spanish flu pandemic that killed millions around the world in just two years. Killed 50 million people, they 50 now million. estimate. 50 million. <laughs> the 1918-19 influenza. And they didn't even know that was a virus until about 1937. They had no idea what was killing people. They suspected it was a, a really uh, virulent uh, bacterium. They didn't all, figure all out... All the penicillin in the world, which they didn't have at the time, wouldn't have helped. Yeah. And yeah. it may be that it was, that it was a, a, the, the flu virus that we now know of compounded by a nasty bacterium because the people who are sick with flu were not getting any antibiotics. They didn't exist then. So, yeah, so we have come a long way, thanks to people like Joe DeRisi and Nathan Wolf and Ian Lipkin at Columbia in New York and a number of other people around the world. We have much better, faster, more sophisticated diagnostics, and we, and we know a little bit more what we're looking for. You can't really 
detect a virus in a sample unless you know what you're looking for or or you're looking for something similar so you get a, a, at least a, a a close you need a luck a little piece of luck yeah, here right yeah. right and the SARS SARS spilled over in 2003 uh, and we had we had good tools but not the tools that we have now so they were able to identify and characterize it pretty early on they there were people in Hong Kong that were working on it people around the world working on it and they could say okay this is a coronavirus we're used to these things being colds but this thing is much more than a cold uh, this is killing people. It's very infectious. It, it travels through the air. You need to be very careful. Uh, these people are shedding viruses before they become really, really ill. Uh, your health care workers are going to be exposed. There were already a lot of health care workers who were sick and dying from SARS. But we got around it. They got around it. The scientists and the public health people managed to contain it and stop it. About 9,000 people were infected. No, excuse me, about 8,000 people were infected, and depending on whose count you use, about 900 died. So it was running at about 10% lethality, which is bad, which is horrible, but it would have been much worse if they hadn't contained it, if it had gotten, gotten away. So there was a combination of really good science, really good, fast public health measures, uh, a certain amount of luck, and part of the luck was that when it spilled over and then it traveled, it went from Hong Kong to Beijing to Toronto to Singapore to Hanoi. Think about those cities. Those are all sort of firmly governed command and control cities so that when they said, we need to control this thing, we need to have isolation wards in the hospitals, we need to control how much people are passing this along, they could do that because it was a controlled and not a chaotic system. Imagine if that had happened in a city very unlike Singapore, like Kinshasa, capital of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I love the Congo. I love the people there. I wish that they had um, better governance and better public health. It's scary to think of what SARS might have done if it had gotten into Kinshasa as opposed to Hong Kong. could have been very different or a number of other cities that I don't want to demonize Kinshasa, a number of other cities that you could name. But those cities where SARS spilled over were among the most firmly governed, the most controlled, the most tidy cities in the world. That's part of why we stopped it. Well, I think about China where they went in and said, this entire hospital is shut down. No isolation work. Yeah. Nobody's going in, nobody's going out. If you're in, you're in. You know, the idea of some, doing something like that, I, it's hard to, to think in yeah. the United States how we would do something like that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe we're lucky it, you know, it didn't get to Los Angeles. Uh, we're certainly lucky it didn't get to Los Angeles, but might have been difficult to do the same sort of thing even in this country. Well, I think about San Francisco. We have tens of thousands of people landing here every day from yeah. all over the world and spreading throughout the population, yeah. you know. You know, in terms of... Uh, yeah, in terms of how we control this sort of thing in the future, Mara, one of the things I've been thinking about is um, what we might expect, um, for better or worse, in terms of public health measures and control as we try to protect ourselves against these things. You know, 12 years ago, it, 13 years ago, you could still get on an airplane carrying a pocket knife. You can't get on an airplane carrying a pocket knife anymore. You can still get on an airplane carrying a virus. That may come to an end. There are some places during the SARS epidemic and afterwards during some of the flu scares where you saw infrared scanners in airports. People walked through a scanner and, and it told 
the uh, the immigration people who had a fever and who didn't. If you walked through and you were at 102 instead of 98.6, they called you aside. I suspect that we're going to see more of that. I'm speaking with David Quammen, the author of Spillover, Animal Infections in the Next Human Pandemic. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, a San Diego company works on a blood test for lung cancer, as well as a bladder cancer test already approved in Europe, and a dozen other cancer diagnostics all in the pipeline. Stay with us. to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with David Quammen about his 2012 book, Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. There's been plenty of misinformation about where HIV AIDS came in. Let's set the record straight. Where did it start? How did it start? Well, based, uh, I tell that story in the book. I have a long, the penultimate chapter, sort of the crescendo of the book, traces the, uh, the origins of the AIDS pandemic. It began with a single zoonotic spillover. I mean, there are 12 different strains of, of HIV around the world, 12 major strains. But of those 12 major strains, only one of them essentially accounts for the entire AIDS pandemic. One of them accounts for almost all the AIDS cases around the world. And that one strain, we now know, spilled over from a single chimpanzee into a single human in the southeastern corner of Cameroon, in 1908 or earlier, give or take a margin of error, at least the the a best century si- ago, the best science in the last four years has told us that story with a high. You're never positive about science, but with a high level of confidence, very persuasive um, data on that. Yes, a century ago, and then it simmered. It simmered for decades, barely reproducing itself, barely keeping itself alive in humans. A low level of transmission from one human to another. 
in the villages of Central Africa, in southeastern Cameroon and downriver. And then eventually, it seems to have gotten down the Sangha River to the main stem Congo River, down the Congo to the big cities. Brazzaville, capital, originally capital of the French Congo, um, and Leopoldville, capital of the Belgian Congo. Leopoldville is now Kinshasa got to those cities. We know it was there by 1959 because there are some positive uh, um, tissue samples that have been retroactively scanned and discovered that there were some people that had this virus. Uh, And then from uh, what became Kinshasa after independence, it got to Haiti. How did it get to Haiti? Well, there were a lot of Haitian professionals, mid-level managers, teachers, engineers, uh, doctors, who had come from Haiti to the newly independent Democratic Republic of the Congo in the early 60s to help out because the Belgians had gone home, taken all their middle management professional skills with them, and the people of the Congo needed help. Haitians came over, started helping out. They had sexual relationships. They picked up the virus. Mobutu came to power in 1965. He didn't like them. He threw the Haitians out. They went back to Haiti. They took the virus with them. Late 60s gets back to Haiti, and then eventually gets to the U.S. and and on to the rest of the world. So it wasn't a CIA plot? wasn't a CIA plot. wasn't... Oh, if a, it could be, said the CIA. <laughs> wasn't, uh, wasn't a single um, airline Canadian attended. airline <laughs> steward. I mean, he was part of it, but, uh, you know, Randy Schultz wrote a wonderful book on this subject, and he called this fellow, uh, Patient Zero, um, in perception as the disease was recognized, he was patient zero. But in reality, he was probably patient 371,422. We've been talking about Africa and uh, southern China and all. That's very far away. Now we have uh, this hantavirus mm-hmm. in Yosemite. And people were getting them in tent cabins in June mm-hmm. and didn't really come down with illness and some dying until, you know, really weeks ago as of this interview. That's right. Uh, Hantavirus, another of these, the the particular virus, they call it sin nombre, the nameless bug, um, uh, a type of hantavirus, another zoonotic infection. It's carried by rodents, carried by mice, passes out of the mice in their feces and urine, decorates the corners of um, cabins and sheds and barns all over uh, well over much of North America. It's not a rare virus. It's present in a lot of places in the mice, but it's only rare that it infects humans when conditions are just wrong, and those conditions were just wrong at Yosemite this summer for at least three people. We've also had West Nile killing people, particularly in northern Texas. I think 15 people have died of West Nile fever in the Dallas area alone since July, something like that. Uh, so This phenomenon is not just Ebola in Africa. It's not just SARS uh, in southern China. Uh, It's happening in this country, too. It's happening everywhere. And when it happens in one place, it gets to other... If it's transmissible from human to human, it gets around the whole world very quickly. Hantavirus does not seem to be transmissible from human to human. West Nile does not seem to be transmissible from human to human. Um, But some of them are including every influenza that comes around each year. We know of the tremendous effort that happened that was mobilized um, in response to SARS, but so much of it was voluntary. 
people with capabilities came out of nowhere saying, I'm going to volunteer. There were labs. There were partially governments. There were all kinds of things saying, what are we going to do? This is sort of a uh, an impromptu get-together. Let's solve this. What do we do with the next SARS? Because they certainly will be one. They'll certainly will be something that that spills over. People get on planes. And we can uh, one human to another can can contract it. Do we have a global way to really manage that? Scientists talk about that as the next big one, and they say yes, we can expect there will be one. There will be a next big one. It will almost certainly be a zoonotic spillover. It'll come from an animal. It'll almost certainly be a virus. It'll probably be a single-stranded RNA virus because that particular kind of virus mutates more quickly. And the fact that it mutates more quickly makes it adaptable, which means that when it gets into humans, a new host, it can more likely adapt, become transmissible, become a problem. What do we do about it? Well, we've got people like um, Nathan uh, Wolf and many others out there devising new methods of, of watching, uh, monitoring, being vigilant, trying to detect these spillovers soon after they happen rather than decades after they happen, as with the, the HIV spillover. Um, so we have a better chance than before of spotting one of these things at a very early phase. And then there are organizations, uh, the CDC and the World Health Organization, a number of others, that uh, are that send out teams, send out response teams to try and contain spillovers, try and contain outbreaks before they spread. Um, and that's very important kind of work. And we have people in the laboratories like Ian Lipkin in New York um, diagnosing, identifying, characterizing these things at a very early stage. We have people working on vaccines. Uh, the, um, the federal government, even the Department of Homeland Security now is funding research on Ebola vaccines. So there's a lot that can be done. Whether it's enough, we don't know. Um, there will be a next big one, but whether it's biggish or huge, whether it kills thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, or millions of people, um, depends on the proficiency, the speed, um, the um, the will of our response, and also depends to a certain extent on luck, because there is a random element in all of this. Um, in terms of the way these these viruses change, there is a certain uh, point where we can't predict exactly what's going to happen. We can only we can only watch, be vigilant, and be ready to respond very effectively. Well, I have to say, you know, you don't have to read too many of your books or anything that you write, David, and know that you go all over the world in some of the sketchiest places. <laughs> yeah. There's well, David. There's more Hello. of that. In, there's more of that in this one. It's an excuse. I mean, for for me, it's sort of been a, a quest. It's been a six year quest to um, to meet the people who are doing this work in the field, to to spend time with them in some of these situations, you know, darting gorillas in um, the Congo or. Uh, trapping bats on a rooftop in Bangladesh or climbing into caves in southern China, or talking to the horse people in Australia. Um, it's a it's a scientific travelogue. It's it's a quest around the world to meet the people who are doing this work and to and to stitch these pieces together into a story that 
is is enlightening, is serious, but I hope is also very entertaining for the reader. And you walk through Ebola country, you know you're going out there and standing right next to the people testing these things, and uh, you must have some personal travel tips to give us that uh, that you you follow because uh, you travel to these kinds of places. Uh, get your shots. Get Always your, get your get, shots. Get your flu vaccine and get your other shots. Um, stand three feet behind the guy who is handling these animals. Don't let anybody hand you a bat that's dripping with virus if you can help it. Don't eat the monkeys. Don't eat monkeys. Don't eat the monkeys. And um, and wash your hands a lot. A whole lot. Yeah. With the soap if you have it. Yeah. You yeah. carry it with you. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> But at the same time, another piece of advice is don't obsess. Don't lay awake at night. Don't waste a lot of time worrying about this. Learn about it. Understand what the dangers are and what the limits of those dangers are. Understand the mechanics of those dangers. Understand a little bit about the science underneath it. And I can almost promise you that you'll come away from from this book or from anything that you read about it um, or anything factual that you read about it. You'll come away better off. You'll come away uh, empowered rather than uh, rendered more anxious. And a respect for life. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, the, the viruses and bacteria, they're just trying to live, too. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, life, it is a mystery. It's a true <laughs> mystery. David, always a pleasure. Come back, see us anytime. Thank you very much, Mara. David Quammen told us that the next big one would most probably be a single-stranded RNA virus. And guess what? He was right. COVID-19 is a single-stranded RNA virus. His 2012 book is Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. More recently, he's published The Tangled Tree, a radical new history of life. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Every year in the U.S., there are 200,000 new cases of lung cancer. And unfortunately, two out of three are diagnosed at stage four. If the diagnoses could be obtained earlier, many, many lives could be saved. Nucleics in San Diego is working on a blood test for lung cancer. And with a blood test for bladder cancer already approved in Europe and other efforts to diagnose 12 other cancers, their goal of making annual testing for cancer routine is well underway. Chris Hibbard is the CEO of Nucleics. Chris, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Mara. Now, I was looking at the statistics on lung cancer, and out of the 200,000 cases of lung cancer diagnosed in the U.S. every year, nearly two out of three are already stage four, which, of course, is the latest stage. Why is that? That's a great question, Moira. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that symptoms don't turn up until you're into the later stages. So in order for you to pick up the very early stages, you need to go looking for it rather than waiting for a symptom to present itself. And so many of the people that I know, including people in my extended family, they never smoked at all. So why would you be looking for it? You know, that's a challenge that I think uh, the scientists are working on trying to find ways to to identify this. But even just in high risk populations, 
there are some tools available to find these patients earlier. For example, low-dose CT. And those low-dose CT, CT scans um, actually have been tested and they ran clinical trials and they showed that they could pick up patients earlier and actually have a significant benefit. In fact, they approved the screening for patients who are above 55, who smoked 30 or more years uh, a pack a day. So they're called 30 pack years. And so that population does have a tool available, yet a very small portion of them actually do it. Now, I know you've been working on this. Nucleics has been working on this for quite some time. Let's roll back. When did it start? How did it start? Well, Nucleics started with a couple of scientists from the Weizmann Institute, and they left uh, the Institute to start a company that focused on forensics. And what they wanted to do was apply a new technology called methylation detection to assess crime scenes. And what they were going to do is basically, you know, scrape off a small sample and then determine what are the origins of this small, dirty little sample? Is it blood? Is it uh, saliva or semen? And they were very successful and developed an almost perfect test for crime scene assessment. And uh, they were very pleased they got in the press. In fact, uh, there's even a Law and Order episode that refers to these brilliant scientists. Much better than being in science or nature. Or if you're a Law and Order episode, you're real. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But you mentioned the word methylation. What the heck is that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually much simpler than the word sounds like. So if you look at our DNA and you have, let's take uh, heart tissue and lung tissue or a blood cell or skin cell, what's common between the two is that you have the same DNA sequence in all of those examples. But what makes them different is something called methylation. And this is where a little group, it's a carbon and three hydrogens, sit on top of your DNA, and it changes what gets expressed following that. So essentially, what differentiates your blood cell from your skin cell isn't the DNA sequence, it's the methylation pattern that sits on top of that DNA. And that's what differentiates the tissues in your body. And in the same way, if you have a healthy lung, for example, and then you have somebody who's developing lung cancer, you will see a different methylation pattern between the healthy lung tissue and the tumor. And that's why methylation is such a powerful tool for early cancer detection. You're saying that the methylation lays on top of the DNA. That suggests that this is something physical. What is this, this methylation pattern? Yeah, that actually is is part of the differentiation in your tissues that develops as you're growing. In fact, it actually allows, you know, heart cells and lung cells to express themselves differently. And in the same way that as a, a healthy tissue like a lung begins to develop a tumor, you'll see this methylation pattern change. And this is what the scientists uh, observed. And all of the hard work that was done early on to figure out what the source of tissues were, for example, is it, is it blood, is it saliva? And the, the fact they had to work with very small samples allowed them to perfect a technique that allowed them 
to pick up these changes in a very sensitive way. And the reason why you need that is that there's 28 million possible changes in this in your human genome. So the average person could see any one of those changes take place in the background, depending on the tissue, depending on the condition. They're actually looking for the presence of something, I would say it's akin to a flag. It's essentially a carbon and three hydrogens, and they're able to... That's it. That's it. It's, it's <laughs> nothing more complicated. One carbon, three hydrogens. <laughs> that's it. And, and that sits in different places across your genome and changes the function. And it's amazing how complex it is, yet in a way, it's also very simple. It's like a switch. It switches on or off the activity across the genome. So now let's bring it to diagnosis of lung cancer. So you have your healthy lung, but once a tumor starts growing, that methylation pattern changes? Yes. In fact, what we've done in our studies is to look at patients who, for example, were healthy or even heavy smokers. And what you can see over those two groups is that patients who develop lung cancer look different from healthy and they look different from other smokers. And that's what we're looking for. We want to look for that pattern change amongst, for example, the high-risk population of smokers. And later on, we perhaps can address the broader question you asked earlier, which is, you know, some people who never smoked and developed this. Our research has helped us look through the vast number of possibilities. And what we did was we looked at the ones that turn up more reliably than others. And then we look for ones that we can measure specifically in the case where there's cancer, but we want to make sure it doesn't turn up in those cases where they don't have cancer. For example, they may be healthy normals or they may be smokers that don't have cancer. So, so we looked across the genome for these patterns that turned up. The cancer in lung cancer is inside my body. It's in my lungs. How do you get to those cells? The current screening modality is looking for changes. The, the, the physical presence of a tumor and the CT scan will see it. But in fact, what happens is there's turnover of these cells and they're released into the blood and the DNA is found in the blood. And we can look for that DNA and we can look for the methylation pattern on top of that DNA. And that's how we find those lung cancer patients early because we can look at that and say, wow, look, these markers have turned up in this particular patient. They're not normally there unless they have cancer. So uh, when your cells die, fragments of them end up in your blood, and that's what you're looking at. And we're looking at the DNA from those cells. And there is commonality across all humans when we look at these differences in methylation patterns? There are differences when you look at mutations between populations uh, across the world, say China is a little bit different from North America. But interestingly enough, with methylation, we're finding that the ones that we have identified have held up. So we've done studies in a number of countries throughout Europe and the Middle East, and in, we compared it and looked across at a Chinese population, and we saw the same results. So this methylation pattern, if you pick the right markers, can be seen across the populations. So you're looking for the right markers here. You're probably looking for what are we going to do for a clinical study or two to prove it works. 
So the way we tested it is first, we did some research to identify the markers. We started with about a half a million possible markers and we distilled it down to six that looked really good. We ran some studies to establish what the performance might be. And then we enrolled a completely new set of patients to really test it, to see how it performed. And um, this in total was about 700 or so patients that we looked at, 300 cases, 400 controls. And um, the results were, were really impressive. And we were able to identify about 85% of the early stage cancers, which is really uh, quite astounding and did particularly well out of identifying the small cell lung cancer patients where we picked up all of them. In fact, if you look at the American Cancer Society data and you, you look at early versus late identification, it's 10 times the five-year survival rate if you can identify them at the early stages versus late stages. That's a profound impact on people's lives. So if you can identify these patients in stage one or two, you can really change their lives. Now, on public radio, we don't normally do prices. But in this case, your targeted price range, making this available to so many people, really plays a role in whether or not it's viable. So what, what's your targeted price range for this? What allows us to be able to offer it at a reasonable price is, is the technology and the approach that we've taken. We're going to start with a test around $250. And over time, we'll bring it down. As we bring the volumes up, we can bring it down. And, and maybe one day we'll have a test that's $99. And the idea is to make this available for everybody and anybody who needs it. So we're focused on performance, making sure that this works really well. We have a lot of data behind it. And over time, we'll make it available to everybody who needs it. And hopefully we can get everybody screening this on an annual basis. Well, blood tests are routine for us. We go in and they send us many things. Now they send it all online. Many different, more has come in from the same blood you gave. More has come in. And so this could be part of a standard workup if it could be become economical, obviously. That's exactly right. And that's what we're targeting is to put it into the context of your annual screening and make it fit nicely within that uh, normal checkup. Now, when do you think this could be available? So we're actually uh, very pleased that we have now a second generation of the test. We actually think we'll have a third generation in six months. And we plan to run additional clinical studies and we'll be aiming to introduce it uh, in 2022 and beyond. So it's coming right up. It is. It's coming right up. Has any of this been held up by COVID? Not really. Um, I was really pleased uh, at how our team just adapted to the new environment. And well, I, here we are on Zoom. Would we have been on Zoom? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. but, for, but for the uh, this COVID crisis. Uh, so I, I'm very pleased at how everybody adapted and they worked really hard uh, every minute of the day they're pushing to make this product better. So this is called Lung EpiCheck. But I've got to believe that this will work on almost any kind of cancer. You're exactly right. In fact, the development of this methylation pattern, and we referred to it in the lung, is true for other cancers. And so some of the early work that the company did was in the context of bladder cancer, 
And so the thinking was, well, we'll look at bladder cancer recurrence. And these patients have to go through cystoscopies, you know, four times in their first year and a couple times the next year. And we said, well, what if we could find a way to pick it up in urine and pick up those uh, high-grade cancers that are really the big worry? And we developed a test for that. And we actually uh, got it CE marked in Europe, and it has now been submitted to the FDA. So for bladder cancer, we have an outstanding result, but we've also done further work in 12 other cancers. And these are with different markers each time. And we're very pleased with the results. This technology has the ability to reach much, much further. But I think it's important to have some focus initially and, and ask the question, what do you want to do with the result first before you go answer the question that you can identify all of them? There are different trade-offs to manage. For example, some cancers grow really quickly and they're severe. Some take a long time. The populations may be a little bit different. And then the interventional steps to verify are quite different. So managing all of that complexity in one go is a bit of a handful. Uh, I think in the context of lung cancer, we know there's a great need to find these patients early and we know what the next step is and we know how to care better for them once we've identified it. So that's what we're working on now. We'll add in one idea that we've been working with is to look at smokers and say, look, smokers get a number of other cancers too. So they get esophageal cancer, uh, they have uh, liver cancer, all at elevated rates. And over time, what we may be able to do is to actually help identify these other cancers, not just lung, because there are many others, including bladder, that they get. Well, you mentioned Europe. I mean, you can imagine the decision that says, hey, we have a really great test here. We should take it all over the world versus, oh, we have tests for other things. Should we keep it here? What should we do? These are two vectors, as we would say in, in physics, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think partnerships are pretty important. Um, in order to bring some of these technologies forward. There's a lot of work to be done. And so we look at uh, partnerships to help build this globally. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you'll come back and keep us updated. Thanks very much, Mara. Enjoyed the conversation. Chris Hibbert is the CEO of Nucleics in San Diego. More information is available at nucleics.com. That's N-U-C-L-E-I-X, nucleics.com. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.